Hello and welcome to the HR Futures podcast brought to you by Expedite HR, the company behind Working Futures and Strategic HR Task Force. My name is Kevin Green and I'm your host today. Our guest is the Chief People Officer of uh, Essential, Rav Tribe. Hello, Rav. Hello. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your current job, how long you've been there, size of the organisation, what it does. Okay, I've been at Essential for about 18 months, um, joined there from Sky, where I was the Director for People for the UK and Ireland, um, where I was, I was at Sky for about 10 years, uh, and joined Essential because, uh, you know, I just thought it was an exciting, rather smaller sort of company. So we're about 2,000 people, FTSE 250, um, and we specialise really in information services and content services to consumer goods businesses looking to optimise their design, marketing and sales on the new digital retail platforms like okay. Amazon or Alibaba. Or so who, who would a customer of yours be? It would be retailers, so, would it, uh, uh, No, ty- typical customers would be uh, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, um, L'Oreal, people okay. like that. But also the retailers to a reasonable degree. And what would they be looking? So give us an example. What sort of data would they be acquiring and how would they use that? So we, we look at the whole sort of sales life cycle, if you like, for a consumer product. So they might be buying data or sort of perhaps trend analysis to start with to help them with product design decisions that they might be looking to do. So we run brands like WGSM, which is the biggest trend forecaster in the world. And that would help someone like Procter & Gamble perhaps consider packaging okay. uh, for a product that they were you know, looking to design and put new into the market. Then we have services that help them with marketing. Uh, once they perhaps got it into market or they're about to bring it into market. So okay. things like MediaLink is a consultancy we own, um, which helps um, build marketing strategies um, for consumer businesses or Can Lions, which is the biggest festival of creativity in the world. So celebrating kind of marketing and advertising of products. And then finally, we help um, companies. So let's say it's uh, Unilever putting a product through Amazon. Um, we help them measure their market share on Amazon uh, measure their um, digital shelf, so how their products are actually presented sure. on these digital platforms, um, and their pricing um, and the likes of that. And is it how's the business been put together? Has it been acquisition driven, or uh, has the business been around for a long time? What's its history? How's it? Because that sounds quite a modern, funky, different type of business, and I suspect it's most probably quite entrepreneurial and you've acquired. But tell us a bit about the history. Well, it's a really long story, so I'll try and make it a short one. So Essential used to be, a long time ago, EMAP, uh, which was essentially a consumer publishing and a consumer TV and broadcast business. Um, That hit some difficulties quite a long time ago, uh, rationalised its business, you know, got rid of its consumer publishing, got rid of its sort of um, TV interests, um, and just left itself with some big events um, and some big information services products. So Can Lions, for example, or WGSN. and then Essential or became top right during private equity ownership, having been delisted at one point as EMAP, uh, became top right, owned by Apex and Guardian Media Group, um, disposed of more brands, um, rationalising its way towards this idea of being just a few killer brands in this B2B consumer sort of product space, um, and then started to acquire more businesses to make sense of that. So, you know, we, we lost our business-to-business publishing about two years ago because it didn't really fit with that strategy. Um, but we bought things like One Click Retail, which is a you know, new age business which helps companies measure their market share on platforms like Amazon. So we disposed of things and we bought things and we ended up being essential. So tell us a bit about the leadership team. 
So, yeah, I mean, we've got a great chief executive, a chap called Duncan Painter, who was originally, uh, I mean, he started his career in a corporate, but quite quickly uh, became an entrepreneur, created one of the first sort of data intelligence consultancies of any scale called Clarity Blue, um, and sold that as an entrepreneur to Experian, um, then built a division of consumer sort of technology and data businesses for them. Yeah. And I met him, actually, when Sky bought that business from Experian, um, so I, I met him uh, as the chief exec of that business that we were buying and just really got on with him. I just thought he was an incredibly straightforward um, sort of guy. Um, like, you know, generally, you know, my experience of corporate life is people are not that free with information. You know, well, here's, here's, here was a leader who, um, you know, was so kind of straightforward um, and honest with people um, about you know, information. I guess he was in the business of information, so yeah. he thought it's integral that you, would, you know, information is power, so you'd give it away. Um, and I just really liked that. I thought he had a really good moral compass. And uh, he left Sky, and he, he went to actually do this turnaround for what was Top Right Group at the time, yeah. and became essential. He'd been there for about seven years, and then taken it through an IPO. And then the rest of the leadership team, I'd have to say, is like really good. Because, you know, you come across dysfunctional leadership teams over the course of your career. It's, um, I've, I've worked in places that are generally been pretty good um, or very good. But, um, you know, but you see a lot of places where it's a bit weird. Um, you know, this place, it's not very big, this, the executive team. So it's, you know, Duncan, perhaps seven of us uh, yeah. on it. So it's small enough to actually have proper conversations about things. Um, good mixture of men and women. So some good sort of, cool. uh, diverse sort of views on there. Um, and a lot of just genuinely nice people, um, you know, trying to do just a really decent job with a really decent sort of company. There's no politics, uh, genuinely no politics. Um, and that's, that's a breath of fresh air. Sounds a great business. Uh, but you had a great job at Sky and you've been there 10 years. Why did you decide to drop out of a, a big organisation like Sky with all the security and wonderful share options I would imagine to join a smaller, more nimble, but more entrepreneurial business? Uh, well, it's, well, it's pretty straightforward, actually. Uh, before I went to Sky, um, despite being a BT for a very short period of time, which I would regard as a sort of, sort of weird experiment that didn't quite work. Um, we'll come back I, to that. We'll come back to the weird experiment. Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> no, we should. Um, so I was, uh, I was actually at Getty Images. Uh, I was part of the team that created Getty Images, which a lot of people will know, um, for, for about seven years before that. And I just love that kind of size business. So I love Sky, but... Getty was, you know, between two and three thousand people at any point in time. Um, it was listed, um, technology oriented, trying to transform the customer experience, whatever that customer might be, through technology, and that's really been the theme through my career. Whether it's a big or a small company, you know, it doesn't really bother me that much. You know, Sky was doing it, Getty was doing it, and I was at Sky for ten years, you know, and in the end, you, you know, I always sort of say, look, whatever good ideas you had um, and they liked have already been used. Uh, whatever good ideas you had, uh, which they didn't like, they're never going to get used um, after 10 years of sort of banging <laughs> on about it. Um, so, you know, so it was just starting to go. I mean, as I love Sky, I just thought it was a great business, but I, I needed to go somewhere else. And, and I like the idea of going somewhere medium sized again and perhaps more international. So essentially, it's very, okay. very global. Um, a bit like Getty was. Um, and, I, and I like, particularly, I like the US. And I like what's going on there. If okay. you're in tech businesses, you kind of got to be more connected, I think, perhaps okay. to the US. So I'm going to ask, that, that's the question, really. So, so what was it that really attracted to you this, to this business? And tell us a bit about the people agenda. So what could you see on the outside when you was talking 
to Duncan about joining the organisation? What was it you think, actually, I can add lots of value, I can really make a difference to this organisation? Yeah, um, so like I said, I've, I've always followed technology. So, you know, I originally started my HR stuff in a, a, a consultancy that was, set, you know, selling services on SAP and Oracle and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. enterprise back office systems, did that for a while, moved to Getty because it was one of the first e-commerce businesses in the world. This is when, you know, the dot-com boom hadn't yeah, even yeah, started. Yeah. So followed it on to consumer transformation through technology um, or, well, more business to business, but the front end customer transformation yeah, yeah. through technology. Then went to Sky um, because it was changing the consumer technology proposition around conversion media, you know, broadband, TV all mixed together. And, you know, the next big thing is going to be data, right? I mean, it's been around for a while, but, you know, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence deployed in favour of transforming some kind of customer experience. And essential, you know, I'm not just saying it because I work there. I mean, it's one of those businesses with some scale that is right in that space um, and I you know I like these new technological spaces um, in terms of the people challenges I mean they're much the same as all these other places really because they're you know they're technology and media oriented and they're in they're in marketplaces where things are changing fast so the challenges are really with um, you, you know you don't have enough people so the issues around engaging people and retaining people and attracting them are really so tell us a bit about that, Ralph. So, so let's just drop into a bit. So, so when you say look, it's difficult to get the people we need, is it a is it a technical skill? Is it a leadership? Is it is it a marketing? What what is the capability that you you know when Duncan was talking to you at the beginning? If you can find me another twenty of them, we're going to be flying. What is it? What is the capability that you most probably would like to have more of? It's people who have got experience of working with the digital uh, distribution retail platforms. Because they are, they haven't been around for that long, no. and now they're getting to a point of sort of critical mass where you know it might have been that Amazon was, you know, it was obviously big, but you know bricks and mortar retail still completely dominated, and I think in the last two years we've just seen Shifted. that switch. Yeah. So and they're growing exponentially. So people who have actually got experience of how these platforms work because they're incredibly complicated. Um, you know, whether it be doing marketing over these platforms and trying to sell across these platforms, trying to work out distribution in relation to these platforms. There just aren't many people in the world who have that experience. Yeah. And there's more and more people needing them. So all of the consumer businesses, yeah, yeah. good goods businesses need them. Essential needs them. You know, you mix data science into there, which is booming. But again, there's not enough data scientists in the world. Okay. Um, so people with experience of digital platforms, people with really good experience of data management and data services, just not enough of them in the world. So finding them means you've got to try things different, um, you know, because everyone's looking for them. So to stand out, you've got to do things differently. And that appeals to keep them. You know, they've got all sorts of... And how many of people with that type of set of skills would you have in the whole population? So if you were looking at the whole... Well, given that, you know, I mean, we're pretty standard in that we have, you know, operations, sales, marketing, well, all these... Finance, all that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, finance and HR to a degree, because they need to, certainly in HR, you need to understand the people that you're trying to recruit and retain and the sort of work that they're doing. Um, And, you know, if you can see through the individual right through to the actual work they're doing with the customer and it's in this kind of space... 
you need your age old people to be pretty savvy with that. Absolutely. It's not essential, right? I mean, you know, we've got to know what you're looking for, though, haven't yeah. you? You've got to yeah. know what you're looking for. You've also got to be discerning about what you want to retain yeah. and what you're happy to lose. So I suppose just try and quantify it a bit for me. So, in terms of, you know, these deep expertise that you're looking to retain, you're looking to find uh, in a marketplace which is incredibly tight because everyone's looking for the same thing. Is that sort of 20%, 30%, 40% of your population? In terms of, you know, right oh, yeah. in that space, 30 to 40% yeah. probably in one role or another, but probably another 30% where they're pretty close to it. So they they need to properly get it, okay. um, even if they even if they to a degree have got more more room to learn about it. Okay. So tell us a bit about how you went out and attract people to your organisation, about your brand. How do you differentiate your offering? Because everyone's looking for this talent. How do you compete against Amazon or the fast-moving consumer goods or other technology businesses? Well, you know, my career has always been about you've got to find your points of differentiation, right? You've got to find the things that you can really exploit and um, create a positive name for in the market if we're talking about attraction. Yeah. And ours is inclusion, which I know a lot of people would like that, but, you know, essentially it's the only FTSE 350 business with more women on its board than men at this point in time. Cool. Um, so, it's, that's a, you know, it's a reasonable fact point um, to start um, trading on, you know, how genuine our credentials are yeah. in this space. Um, we are um, just, I know everyone says this, but when we ask people, you know, given we measure everything, like we're a measurement company in many respects because we deal in sort of data and content. Yeah, yeah. So we measure everything to do with people. So we measure engagement in all these different guises. So our, our absolute number one highest scoring um, question is, uh, do I feel that I can be myself around here at this organisation? So we're at like 93% on that, which is, a, you know, it's not 100%, I prefer it was, but it's really hard to get to that kind of score. And how do, you, how do you know that's a great score? I mean, would your competitors have scores, anything like that? Do you get data where you yeah. can go, actually, we're sort of, you know... Well, data's not much good unless you can benchmark. No, absolutely. Else, right? So, no, the firm we, we work with, obviously, they've got benchmarks. Yeah, that's a really high score. I mean, you know, you're not going to get much higher than that. No. But if you ask people then, um, well, how inclusive is this place? Um, and we video them doing it because we're con into content as yeah, well. Yeah. So we use video a lot. Um, you will get gazillions of people in the workforce going uh, in a really heartfelt way. Oh, no, look, if this company's good at anything, it's good at inclusion. It's good at allowing me to be myself. It's good at um, accepting me, whatever okay. um, my differences. Um, and then we video it and then we splash it all over Everywhere. our career sites. And also we get all of our senior team doing yeah, the same yeah, thing. Yeah. And, you know, you just got to kind of monster this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and get your get your credentials on inclusion out there. We have other, you know, we have other things. But, but so, so, so let's just go behind that for a moment. So how do you create that culture? How because that's a, that's something that's real. If your people are saying it and you're not prompting them and they're giving you feedback, so how do you go about creating that inclusive, you know, participative, collaborative type of culture? Because it is a differentiator and it's easy to talk about, but quite difficult to make happen. Uh, well, it's a tough one, right? I think you've actually got to go and find a CEO and a management team who are literally blind to difference. Um, so they just authentically, as individuals, don't care about people's differences. They just care about their abilities. And I think, you know, we've got a guy, Duncan Painter, there, but also other members of the senior team, so Mandy Gradden, who's the CFO, etc. They literally, um, they're blind, uh, I would say, to difference. Um, so we don't do that much to manage it, if you like, but what we do do quite a lot of is then exploit the fact that um, they are so open um, to difference by, um, 
you know, going really hard on things like work flexibility, you know, get a video yeah, yeah. them all on it so that you get all those senior sort of messages going out and it's emphatic what your position is on it. But I've got to say, you know, this is no different to when I was at Getty. So Getty Images have got really, really um, high scores on in, um, inclusivity as well. And I think it's because our senior team just didn't, didn't care about differences. And if you looked at them, they were ridiculously sort of diverse. So, I mean, that's quite interesting. So if I'm in a large organisation, perhaps like Sky, which would have the same aspiration, yeah. but would be that much more, you know, scales different, markets would be different, most probably more traditional just in terms of how, you know, because of the way they're yeah. run and stuff. How do you create that? How do you, I mean, is it just about go out and find the right leaders and get the leaders loose and encourage them to say the right thing and do the right thing and we'll sort of get there? So is it just that, you know, do you, is it organic or do you, well, is the ways in which you have to intervene? Well, I suppose I'd say two things. I mean, I don't want to talk, so I, I will talk specifically about Sky and, um, you know, something really good that it was, it was doing in set. But to be quite honest, I would say that if it's not completely clear that this is a feature of your senior, senior team, um, and, and the senior team at Sky were great. I mean, they were very open and stuff. But perhaps not so much to the same degree as where I am now, essential. I would say, as an HR person, just don't make that your major point of differentiation then, right? Because it's got to actually stand out where you're looking at it, going, no, no, this is Yeah, yeah it's got to be genuine. real, isn't it? But, say, if you take Sky, Sky had a really, really big thing about how important it was to, uh, around um, uh, gender in leadership, right? So having a you know, decent sort of split between men and women. And there was a, a particular senior executive there who got behind this, a uh, chap called Chris Dillianu, who was you know, one of the most senior people we had yeah. in that business. And he did have a particular thing about it. Um, you know, it uh, was really sort of pro um, sort of uh, equality when it came to sort of gender. I mean, he pushed forward this idea called, uh, you know, women in leadership, which I know a lot of things are called that. But I don't think anyone would doubt his sort of the seriousness of his um, commitment to that agenda. And we managed to, we did pick on that, right? And we did really line up a lot of activity on that. And we switched our... Um, sort of uh, numbers at the top from, uh, I can't remember quite what it was, but something like 31% women in the senior leadership team yeah, yeah. to over a very short space of time, like 18 months, because we really went at it to about 41%. We actually had more women on the senior team then than we had in the terms of, than we had in the dem general demographic of the workforce. Well, I think we had about 40% women in Scotland. So your point is, is you can do things to change it and you can work at it, but at the, the same time, think about your point of differentiation. Think about how you're unique, how you're different from your competitors because everyone's hunting for talent. Tell me a bit about one of the things I suppose I'm always interested in when I'm talking to HR directors is the thing that when you, you know, you look back, you've been in HR, I don't know, quite a long time now, Ralph, 25 years, perhaps 30 years. Tell me about something you're really proud of. The thing that when you look back at, it might be a particular intervention, might be, I know, a great piece of work that you did personally or your team did. But again, just tell us about uh, it, how it came about, what you did and what difference it made. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of things I feel really sort of proud of. But, you know, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, if I'm on my deathbed, sort of looking back and my loved ones are all around me and I'm thinking of things to say to them. But it was so, our I mean, engagement I, strategy I, I, that did it. Yeah, I say, you know, it's, it's unlikely that I'm going to be talking about work as a starting point. I tell my sort of kids how proud I am of them and how much I love them and all of this sort of stuff. And, and my other yeah, yeah, yeah. my wife, etc. But you do um, spend, like me and everybody else in big HR roles, we spend a huge amount 
amount of time of our life at work. Yeah. And, you know, we want to enjoy it and we want to make a difference and we want to contribute. So there, there must have been highlights. There must yeah. have been things you're proud there, of. And... Yeah, there were, right? So I've thought about this. Um, not that I'm dying, but I sort of, you know, I'm getting older. But um, so I'm like, well, what would I be telling my sort of loved ones and my deputy? You know, what's important enough about work? And to be honest, I'm not sure it's really to do with HR interventions. I think it's to do with the journeys of some of the businesses that I've been on, right? So I do feel really proud of um, the journey I went on with Get Images. So I was part of a team that created something which is now okay. really, really well known for, you know, it's been at the top of its game and in its market, no matter what's yeah, come yeah, to yeah. disrupt it for 25 years, 20 years, 25 years. I'm really proud of what happened at Sky, right? I mean, Sky was the most admired British company, um, mm. many years running in, you know, one survey or another. And there were good reasons for that. It was a great company and it was a sort of tech, converged media, right on the cutting edge of cool stuff and it had a people proposition that went with that. It was incredibly enlightened as an organisation. I felt really proud of, of that journey and just being a part of it. I mean, and then Essential, you know, I guess I joined that because I think there's, a, there's, there's maybe one more journey to be had um, in my career. Maybe one more, I don't know, but probably this one for sure. And I think this could be another thing to be proud of. Um, so yeah. since, let me just get underneath it a bit. So what you're really saying is, 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 is it's being part of something, uh, a leader in a leadership role, where you take an organisation from where it where it starts or where you uh, come across it, you know, on a journey. So it gets bigger, it grows in scale, its uh, profits go up, whatever it may be. But it's the journey about being part of a leadership team taking an organisation from position A to position B that you think has been your sort of major contribution from, a, from yeah. an HR perspective? Yeah, I think, I think, that, I think companies, mm. I don't really care how big they've been, but companies that have transformed uh, their customers' experience, right? I think that's a really big deal, and I mean positively, right? <laughs> Obviously not negatively, right? So they've, they've done something which for their customers, go, they sort of customers in the end go, wow, actually, when I look back at that, it's pretty amazing that that company did that. So, you know, take Sky. Um, you know, I don't think any customer of Sky would do anything other than go like Sky Q, you know, the most sort of modern, integrated sort of home entertainment platform. I don't, I don't think they'd say anything, but this thing is like really, really cool and I'm glad that I've got it and I'm glad Sky yeah, produced it. Yeah, I think that's um, fair. I might not like the call centre activity. I mean, I've always had a problem with that, being a big Sky subscriber myself. In terms of the product, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Leading edge, but... You phone up and the service isn't great. But anyhow, I'm not going to get you to defend Sky. I think you probably haven't rung them recently. You probably haven't had to do it recently because everything works so perfectly. But, but, <laughs> Good one. Um, and I'm, I don't work for Sky anymore, right? Sort of, you know, at the same time, I still feel sort of proud of what we yeah. achieved there. Um, but also then, but going back to more of the HR stuff, um, and somewhere then that transformed the employee experience alongside that. Um, and if you sort of go, well, what does that mean? And I go, look, if your employees get to the position... Um, where, you know, if you ask them 10 years ago and you ask them today, you know, the general steer on, you know, have you actually um, moved on positively, personally, professionally and financially by virtue of being with this company? And people saying, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, th I think that that's a really big deal. And I think in the companies I've worked in um, or, and I'm now working in, I think, I think we're on a path to getting there. What, what I'd actually like, and this might be the thing that I did talk about on my deathbed, is from an HR standpoint... You know, if all, most of the people in your company actually would describe their time with that company as the defining assignment of their career, in terms of what they learned and how they grew personally, professionally, and financially, 
that is an amazing outcome, right? And that is really what I think HR should be shooting so just, as a profession. Yeah, and I think there's something definitely in that. So just quickly, just unpick it a bit. So personally, professionally, and financially. So financially, is quite clearly they started on one salary and they earn more and well rewarded. Uh, personally, is what growth, development, enjoyment, and professionally, is their ability to progress in a hierarchy or get bigger jobs elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and I and I get that. And one of the things I want to go back to because I think I knew we'd end up talking about this, is about measurement, right? Because I know that, for me, that's the key for this stuff, is how do you get granular? How do you get local? How do you get information that you can utilise to understand where people are in terms of their experience of your you know, being employed by this organisation? So do you want to just tell us a little bit how you do that here and perhaps how you did it at Sky? Because I know you've most probably done it in certainly those two organisations and I suspect Getty as well. Yeah, I mean, like I say, we measure everything, right? If there was one particular thing about my career, I mean, I've done a few things, but measurement has always been the big thing. So maybe I do know a lot about measurement. I mean, I work for a company that is now in the business of measurement, right? Um, so I think engagement surveys and uh, those sorts are, are critical, right? I mean, you know, you, you hear... what. I feel sort of frustrated that, to a degree, they get defunct a bit in, in this environment. Yeah, I do right? too. So people in the modern sort of world, you get... You know, one podcast or another sort of going, you know, I can't believe that you only survey your employees every year. Um, but, you know, when I was at Sky, we tried all sorts of ways of measuring how employees felt from like every month to every year. But what you actually discover is that your employees don't want you measuring their opinion regularly if you don't do something about that opinion in the intervening sort of months. And it is quite hard to do big things that people notice every month. So all this stuff about, you know, how could you possibly measure what your people think only once a year when you measure your customers every month or every day your relationship with employees is way deeper actually than your relationship yeah with and that's the interesting bit so i get the bit i mean mm. we, you know i agree with measurement stuff and i get the stuff about doing deep dive once a year and then making sure things happen that you improve it because actually if i'm giving you my feedback i'm keen for you to do something about that but why not measure it you're right the, the relationship with an employee is that much deeper but HR people have this sort of thing is we can't ask our people regularly every month or every quarter their views and opinions. And it could be that you ask different questions. You know, you might ask some consistent questions. But again, if you're not doing that, then what you're really not picking up is the movement, the shifts in pattern caused by external events or internal events or changes you've made to systems and processes. So I'm interested in your take on that. Yeah. So look, um, engagement survey is one thing, right? And my own view is... Do that as frequently as you can actually do something with the information you've got. You know, if, you, if you're so yeah, yeah, quick, yeah. you can do that every quarter, then run it every quarter. If you're so fast, you can do it every six months, do it every six months. If you're pretty normal, do it every year. Um, just don't do it and then don't do anything with the information because totally that's agree. what people care yeah, about Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, we, we do measure all sorts of other things in the okay. meantime, but they're specific things, right? So when we do training and development... We, really, we measure the hell out of those interventions so that we can actually... Um, this isn't quite getting to gauging the mood of your workforce. No, no, no. Actually, I don't think the mood of your workforce changes that dynamically week by week. Um, so, but you can measure all of the interventions you make. So um, when we talk to people, as we, we're just doing this big push on work flexibility to try and get people to sort of loosen up on that, okay. we'll put that out and then we'll, we'll measure exactly, exactly how many hits we get on um, those videos and stuff that we've put out. We'll measure exactly what people thought of them. Um, with learning and development, we'll measure exactly, um, you know, because we do a lot of virtual learning now. We'll measure how many hits, what's working, what's yeah, yeah. not. And as a professional then, what you want to do really is, 
you know, keep, keep reading these stats and sort of go, well, that worked, so let's keep going, let's make that bigger. Or this thing isn't working, so let's change it or stop it. And I think that's what the HR profession doesn't do. Right? I think it you know, doesn't measure things enough and it's not responsive enough to the information no. that it gets back. I mean, I mean, there's been a big debate recently about the whole agile thing and, and, I, and I'm really interested in it from an HR perspective because I think it gets us away from thinking about we know best here's an intervention, we're going to put a performance management system in and, you know, everyone's going to like it because we're the experts. We've went around and looked at 10 organisations and this is the best one. Uh, into something which is co-created. You ask your employees, you know, how long should this take? What should we be measuring? You know, but also you try stuff, you pilot stuff, you learn from it. You go, well, that doesn't work. Why don't we try something else? You know, so for me, there's a sort of... Um, you know, a hierarchical, top-down, we-know-best approach, which I think measurement enables you to get underneath. So if you co-create and you measure stuff and go, well, this works, this development is great, people love it, they want more of it, this stuff's not working, let's stop doing that and do more of that. Is it, go on. Yeah, so, well, I would say sort of, right, so I've got a nuance on that. So, so I, I would say it, it depends a bit the company you're working for. So if I, if I take, if, if I compare and contrast Sky and Essential, for example, so Sky, its business is making a few massive bets. That's the business that it's in, right? So it launches HD, it launches Sky Q, it launch, launches Sky Mobile. Yeah. Um, in essence, these are huge bets when you consider the investment that goes into them before getting them into market. And I would have said at Sky, really the way for HR to operate was to try and mirror that. So we did really monster a small number of things, but generally when we did them, we knew they'd go right from the outset because we had sort of worried a bit so much and tested in small part bits to the point of launch, right? But I don't, I'm not sure that Sky was brilliant at test and learn, like lots of things all over the place being test and learned from. Um, Essentials, quite different, right? So Essentials, you know, fortunes strategically really rely upon making a smaller number um, of bets. Um, so, um, sorry, a, a larger number of smaller bets. Right, so Sky is a small number of big bets. Essential is a larger number of smaller bets. And Essential, it is much easier to do test and learn from an HR standpoint because the whole culture of the place revolves around that. So I, I think um, test and learn is brilliant if you're in the right organisation and that is generally how the strategy kind of operates. But I've got a feeling that if you try you know, test and learn as an HR function, in an environment, whether it's big or small, but where it's fortunes but, rely upon a small number of big bets, I've just got a feeling you will hit a, a, a bit of a challenge where you're trying to do something culturally that isn't quite how the organisation works culturally. Yeah, but so I, I agree. I, I get your I get your premise. So you've got to be context specific, understand the organisation, understand its culture, understand how it behaves, so that you can do stuff which is, you know, aligned with that. The question, I suppose, for me, though, is I just think it's that we're obsessed with doing everything across the whole of the organisation. You know, I think one of the great things that HR have is uniformity, consistency, whereas in reality, organisations can be quite different. You know, they can, they can have some similarities, they can be joined up, but if we're going to build organisations which are much more nimble and much more responsive, we may end up with different systems and processes working in different parts of organisations, rather than some kind of monolithic, it's got to be done the same way regardless of whether you're in a call centre, you're a, in finance, or you're a salesperson. So how about that as a, as a concept? Can we do that? Yeah, I think you can do that. Um, 
but again, I think that's an easy thing to sort of say, and and I think you you just got to be a bit thoughtful about it. Because say um, again, I don't, I don't want to keep going back to Sky, but Sky, if you take all the contact centres, that's like seven or eight thousand people. Um, yeah, of course you can sort of test something um, in there. But trying to do something different in every single one of Sky's, you know, mm, various okay. call centres. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that helpful to the people either, you know, running them. No, but it could be that you use, let me give um, an example, just clarify. I'm not saying, you know, do different. Yeah. So, but it could be like you do a different performance management regime in a call centre, which is different than you in the professional sector of the finance function. You well, might yeah, want to I, mean, I, could, I completely agree with that. But, but there, I mean, my view on performance management right, is that you should actually forget the process. Right, you should only measure the outcome. So, you know, if you, what you're after is all your managers do have regular <laughs> conversations with their people that cover, you know, um, three things in particular. Um, you know, gives them clarity about what their sort of um, yeah, yeah. work is for the future, um, talks about the training they might need in relation to that, and talks about what career development they might need in the long term. That's the only point that for having a performance and development process, right, is to maximise performance by having those kind yeah, of conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, my view would be like, who cares what the process is? If you get that outcome, whatever manager... So, I mean, and I, I agree with you, and I'm, you know, I go and talk to HR audiences, I often say, so why are we doing performance management? And we get, like, consistency, man and basically, at the heart of it, managers won't do it unless we tell them they have to do it and we measure the process. But in reality... What, you know, that's a HR's way of intervening in an organisation. I'm with you, I think, measure the outcome. Measure how the people feel about their manager, the work that they do, the environment that yeah. they're working in. And you'll know whether they're getting feedback and whether they're clear about what they're doing. So I think you're absolutely right. Let's go to the outcome. Let's look at what we're trying to impact rather than process and policy and, and procedure. I think we're agreed about that. But anyhow, let's... Well, look, can I just, I just come to one point, though, yeah, right? yeah. So, which I think is, you know, maybe is an interesting point, I guess people listening to this can be the judge of whether it's interesting <laughs> or not. But um, so, but I think where HR does miss a bit of a trick is that what we are discovering from, say, like neuroscience, right, and social and psychological science, which is, and these are sciences which are going really fast now because yeah, of new yeah, technology yeah. allowing Absolutely. us to aggregate information that gives us much clearer positions on how human beings either operate individually or as groups. What we're discovering is that actually, of course, human beings have differences. But also, they have a lot of similarities. So, um, you know, if, if you take, uh, you know, it's a bit of a kind of jargony word, but if you take self-optimization, which is very sort of fashionable, but for good reason, right? Which yeah. is how human beings actually get their best selves out. So their physiology, their psychology, um, and, you know, one or two other habits. You know, how they get to the best state. Well, you find that most human beings, at one point in time or another, will have challenges managing anxiety. Right? And if you don't manage anxiety brilliantly, actually it becomes counterproductive in terms of your productivity. Yeah, yeah. yeah we learned this in sports science a long time ago, and now yeah, that yeah. sort of thinking is starting to get deployed in the world of work. But these techniques are the same. Right? The way the way that human beings kind of like um, do react to events, um, or the way you help them manage their kind of anxiety or whatever it might be, typically those techniques are the same. So those sorts of things you can actually roll out en masse. But I just think HR's been rolling the wrong things out on maths, right? They're generally things which are opinions or best practice, ideas that maybe work, which we're sort of discovering a lot of the time they don't work anyway. Yeah. But actually, if you go to the science of all of this, which is becoming more readily available, and you go, well, what is similar for all human beings? And then you set up HR policy around these things that really work, you know, uh, Bob's your uncle. So I, I, I'm just going to push us on a little bit and then we'll most probably have a break. And, and, and the bit I'm really interested in is that bit about data. So there's one of the stuff that you can start to see and there's, been in, there's beginning to be a debate around it in not so much the HR press, but just national press about actually 
we want data on our people and we've got loads of data we can get on our people you know what systems they use whether they use slack how they communicate how they use calendars what they're doing um we can look at what their eye movements are, what they're looking at on screen. We could get some kind of physiological stuff about heartbeat and anxiety and all sorts of data. So, and I think that's coming, right? I think that really is not far away from our fingertips. The question is, is how do, does HR use that? Or how do people in organizations use it? So if you think about that amount of data, you know, do I need people to know that I had a bit of a drink last night and I'm a bit tired, I'm a bit run down and a bit frustrated? What's right for the organisation to know and not know and to what to use and not use? Now, it's a bit of a big question, Ralph, but I just suppose it's, you know, in terms of how you're talking about what you're doing in your organisation, you'll most probably be, you know, you'll be closer to the front end of potentially doing some of that stuff than lots of other organisations. Just interested in your view. Oh, well, I do. I do have a view. Um, I mean, we have to think about it a lot in Essential because we are one of those companies. We are one of those companies that makes money from the data it owns on people, consumers, and whatever. Yeah. Um, so, firstly, you know, if you've got data on people, you have to use it as a force for good. Um, and of course, what we're discovering in the world is that that is a bit debatable. Whether some of these companies are entirely doing that, you know, you think about you know the use of Facebook to um, yeah, yeah, yeah. effectively uh, influence the results of elections. Mm, it's kind of kind of interesting, really, whether that um, could be described as for good. I'm, I'm sure the people you know commissioning that would describe that as good work, but I don't think the general population <laughs> agrees. So you've got to use that information as a force for good. So if you go to then HR, um, you know HR's job is meant to be as a force for good, right? And to be honest, you know people worry about oh, will they have data on you know whether I had a you know a bit of a big night out last night and am I across? I mean, this assumes that your business and your HR teams or whoever are managing all this data has got the time or the inclination yeah. to get embroiled in um, the, the data about your no, sort of bio. Yeah, I understand I mean, that. Which, which, which they're not. But the kind of data that, um, you know, you could collect, uh, you know, we've sort of talked about. Um, you know, how, how do people um, react to, say, let's say it's learning content. Um, you know, you see that technology being deployed now yeah. experimentally yeah, in yeah, yeah, schools yeah, yeah, yeah. in China. Yeah, yeah where they're looking at sort of facial um, recognition sort of technologies to work out when a teacher's actually, um, or a machine is teaching kids, do they look engaged or don't they? And if they don't, they switch up the content to make it more engaging. And if they do, they amplify the content to make it more engaging. And that's what I would describe quite simplicity as a force for good, because all it's doing is offering you up something which is engaging and that you benefit from. Yeah, and, and I get that, that. And that data, you know, is going to become more and more. Yeah, and I just, I just think it, I just think it's a, an interesting debate because it's about ethics. It's about how you use the data, isn't it? So you're going to get this data on your employees. We've got loads of data on employees already. You know, we're just not very good at using it in most organisations. I just think because of the technology, we're going to have access to it, and the debate. You know, I just think the technology is going to get in front of the debate. You know, and we're going to end up with reactions. I don't want my data, you know, employees have a right of privacy. They can clear what they do. You know, and we're going to get into a big, you know, typical sort of debate where in reality, if we could get into the debate early, we may well be able to create some kind of precedent or ways of doing this where, you know, we have some kind of protocol about how you should do it. And at the moment, I think it's just one of those debates that's going on in the... I don't know. People are talking about it, but no one seems to be nailing anything. Anyway, yeah, but, but it's quite, but it's quite interesting in the end. Right? The, the thing about how you use data in organisations, in the end, the trick between whether you're able to or whether your employees will support you in that, it'll have nothing to do with data. Probably. It'll, it'll, to do it'll, with it'll be to do with sort of sentiment. Yeah, and the culture that you've created about are you an organisation that is generally trying to look after yeah. your people's interests or not? 
if you are, you're going to win, and I guess your workforce is going to trust you to do decent things with yeah. this data, and they're going to look to what you actually do. But it's interesting, it, it brings us back to full circle, really, which is, again, we're looking at outcome, isn't it? So we're looking at, you know, good culture equals trust, yeah. you know, trusting relationship, I'd allow you to use this stuff. Actually, I work in an organisation where I, I don't think people trust me to do the stuff. I'm over-managed, I'm micromanaged, it's so not a great environment. Do I really want them having my data? Most probably not. So I think you're right, it's the environment that this stuff's introduced. Right, we're going to take a break for a moment, but in the second half of the podcast with Ralph Tribe, we're going to be talking about uh, what's gone wrong in his career, some of his personal learning. We'll talk a little bit about things that he thinks really is important uh, for the HR profession. And we'll also talk a bit about the future and a little bit about Ralph the man. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Welcome back to HR Futures podcast. With me today is Ralph Tribe, the Chief People Officer of Essential. And we're going to be talking now, Ralph, a little bit about you towards the end of this, but I also want to go broader. I want to talk about the profession and people entering the profession and a bit about, you know, machines taking our jobs. But before we do that, let's start with you sort of talking about you know, things that perhaps didn't go the way that you wanted them to go in your career, you know, things that you tried and just didn't work. Because I think we learn from success, but we also learn from failure. And I think it's one of the things we need to talk about more as a profession. You know, I think HR gets a, is a bit uptight. You know, we need to get everything perfect when we never do. And so just tell us a little bit about a couple of things that you've done that you think, actually, I got a lot of learning from that, but they didn't go quite the way I planned them to go. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do a big one and a small one. Um, you know, a big one is, you know, you've got to join a company that's on a mission, right? And I have once or twice joined companies which I don't really think was on its own um, you know, uniquely defined mission. So I would say the ones I work for that have been are, you know, get images, Sky and Essential. I did mention earlier on uh, BT, uh, which is, you know, fine if you like BT. But for me, BT just didn't have a mission, right? I mean, it was trying to reinvent itself on the back of some history. Um, and it just didn't really, to me, feel so authentic. And I, I don't want to get into sort of judging BT, but I just think as an individual, you know, you, you've got to go somewhere where you, you the business you've gone to is, is on a mission that you personally relate to. So um, the mistakes I've made career-wise have been, you know, fa failing to do my due diligence on that. Um, and the upside I've had in my career is where I found those organisations, generally by a bit more due diligence. In terms of small examples, um, you know, I don't... I mean, I think life is way too short for regrets, to, to be quite honest. You know, you, you've got to move on. You've just got to move forward. You've got to try and learn from it. But um, if I have regrets that I might think about and remember from all these 25 years, they're emails that I've sent, you know, and really, you know, where you, you've been a bit <laughs> irritated by something. And just to get that need to vent your frustration, you've put it on email and pinged it out to someone. And you can't imagine, actually, some of the damaging consequences that, that come from doing that, whether you do it you know, deliberately or on occasion, I've done it accidentally as well. Um, but there's a hell of a lot of backtracking, um, and there's only one moment of gratification that came from it. And I just, you know, as you can tell, I've done it more than once, so obviously I didn't learn so much maybe from the first But, time. you know, but okay, but now you're a bit older and a bit wiser. How do you manage that? You know when the frustration's coming, you can feel yourself getting close to a keyboard and starting to type. What do you do? How do you just, I, what I tell you, I do, I leave it a day. I leave it a day and go, write it as you feel at the moment. And then before I say that, I'm going to look at it a day later. And always you do some, you edit it and stuff. But how do you do it? Do you do that? Or yeah, do you yeah, do? Funny, I write it to get my frustration onto the page, um, leave it and then delete it. 
Because actually, when you deconstruct him, whatever you were going to say in that email, no matter how much you've edited it, it was never going to be positive for a relationship. Um, you know, it was either going to be very damaging or a bit less damaging at best. Um, it's a bit like, what's the point? Um, either go and have the conversation, or one of the things I actually, uh, or I'll tell you what, okay, or, or don't even bother with the conversation, just let it go, because human beings that you work with, they're, they're fallible, right? Same as you are. Um, just accept their fallibility and just accept that uh, this is just one Get of those things. Way. There are so many other things we but can But there's also, do we, have, we have a responsibility to give people feedback, though, and just say, look, you know. Are you aware of the consequences of you doing that and the impact on the business and other people? You know, one of my roles is to make you aware of that. What you then do with it is down to you. But sometimes you do have to do. It. I mean, doing it in the right way. And I think having a conversation is much better than sending on an email. And I, 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 I agree, right? But but if you were ever doing that email, it's not something that you're feeling very rational about. Right, and feedback is best given when you're feeling objective about it. And there are so many other opportunities other than the time that you were going to write a flame mail. And that is why I would say that's the one not to have the chat about. Um, just let that one go. Yeah, of course, give you feedback in, in various other ways. It's just the person on the receiving end is never going to respond well to that particular thing, right? They're just going to either find it mildly patronising or incredibly annoying, depending on you know, how much you manage to edit it or not. And it's just you've got to, you know, think how many the buttons you can and, push. And, and, you know, yeah. it's like what, do your point about outcome rather than input. Yeah. You know, what you're trying, you're trying to change that person's behaviour because if you're just going to send them something which you know is going to get their back up, most human beings will just retrench on that point. Um, so my advice to myself is just, just don't even bother with that one. Okay. I want to go back to the career decision as well yeah. and the due diligence process because I think that might be really, really interesting for people that may be on a cusp of thinking about joining a new organisation. You know, some of that's about you, though, isn't it, Ralph? So some of it's about your personal drive, the type of organisations, have a journey, have somewhere you can make a huge difference. Other people, whether right or wrong, it's their view, their call, may like a big organisation that's a bit slower moving, perhaps a bit more cumbersome. So again, you know, is that advice you think is relevant for everyone here? Or is it just about do your own due diligence, know yourself and know the organisation you're going to join? Um, I mean, I think I've probably got some uh, pieces of advice that I would give, you know, someone entering the profession, which is pretty generic, irrespective of what size or type of organisation they're joining. I mean, the first one is I would definitely join, I would definitely go into HR. Right? Given my time again, I would 100% go in because um, personally, professionally and financially, this has been the best decision that I ever made. Right? So, um, you know, personally, I mean, I'm a social scientist, right? I've got a degree in sociology for what that's worth. But I did it because I was, I was interested in human beings, right? And this, this is a, a profession that, that allows me to indulge that interest um, whilst working and getting paid for it. And let's face it, right, human beings are still the most interesting, diverse um, group of things on the planet. So you're not really going to get... So, so when you, then you did your degree, sociology yeah. or social science, you decided you wanted a job in HR. So did you put, because that's quite rare, Ralph. I mean, that's remarkable. I find them very rarely where people go, I was doing this and then I thought, how could I apply this? I'm passionate about understanding human beings. How could I take that into a profession? Or did you well, I, come I, across I, it accidentally? It's a bit of a shame, actually, because I'm, I'm, I didn't have that drive. Um, I did sociology because I was quite interested in human beings. And also it was one of the only degrees I could get onto because my level results weren't that amazing. Um, but... Um, but I, did, I, I was interested in human beings um, as, as, as just interesting things on the planet. Um, 
No, I, I, I didn't go in knowing about HR um, or personnel. I thought, I thought I was going to be a social worker, actually. My mum was a social worker, okay. and she was quite an influential figure in my life. And I thought I might do that. Um, and then, you know, after leaving university, I needed to earn some money to go travelling and stuff, and actually got into sales. So I started my career selling um, advertising. But amongst other things, uh, and amongst other magazines published where I was selling advertising, I was Personnel today. today. So Personnel Today was launched. I started reading it because I uh, thought, you know, I might have to sell on this sort of product um, and became, you know, really interested in what was being described there. What was actually being described, funnily enough, was HR could be a strategic force. And this was 30 years ago. But, I'm, I, you know, yeah, when we talk about outcomes, to, we're going to get there one of these days. It took a lot of time for, for maybe HR to sort of get there, um, you know, for the most part. But I was fascinated by it. And at that point, I did decide, yeah, this is what I want to do because... Um, there's people involved, um, looks really interesting, very varied, and I did. But I have to say, um, you know, without going on about the money, because I, th- I think a lot of, you know, young people, um, well, they need plenty of money because the world isn't a cheap place to live anymore. Um, you know, they're, they're concerned about this and they think, oh, well, you know, these professions don't pay well. Um, you know, HR being one of them and they see marketing or finance as being, you know, much better, more lucrative alternatives. Well, that has just not been my experience. Um, no, I think fair. if you're good in HR... I think you can get on just as fast as in any other profession. And to be honest... Faster, I think. Yeah, I think so. Because I think what you... Because talent is easier to spot in HR, I think. I think it's more differentiated. Well, it's partly... You know, just being honest, because some of the most able people go into finance and marketing, like meaning that perhaps the people who go into HR, you know, myself included... Perhaps weren't as weren't as talented, so, uh, weren't as weren't as smart. So that's a great know, question. It was, yeah, yeah. It's then you know what you learn. You know once you're in. So so let's just talk a bit about the profession then. So how do we move HR on? You know I think we uh, recognise that it's it, it's going in the right direction, but it's incredibly slow. We're still having debates about what are we about? Should we be on the table? All of that stuff. Whether we're strategic. So we've made progress, but I don't think it's where. Uh, you or I think it should be. I think some of it's about the point you've just made about talent coming into HR, but it's also a bit about how people learn, grow, develop uh, within the function. So do you want to just comment on how do we build the capability in our profession? How do we make more impact, make more of a difference? Is it about attracting different people? Is it about different career journeys or development along the way? That's that's a big... You know, big question. Uh, so I'll think of a couple of short ideas. Um, I think, um, you know, HR has got to stop um, thinking about best practice um, because what, what it needs to focus on is differentiated practice, right? So I'm not saying it needs to stop thinking about things that are good or well-crafted. But, you know, I think the profession really focuses on, well, what's, what's good elsewhere? You know, what do Harvard Business Review, for example, write about, which is good practice somewhere? Oh, let's replicate that because that's good practice. But I think, you know, that's maybe why I think I've always been a bit different um, in, in HR. I've never seen it that way. So I started in sales. And the whole thing about sales is how is your product differentiated yeah, from yeah, everything yeah. else, right? Um, and I've always sought to say, well... You know, my job for the organisation I work for is to try and think of a small number of things that we become brilliant at that are different to everyone else. Because they will be the things that attract talent towards you or retain people sort of more, more readily. Um, so we've got to stop thinking about best practice and go to differentiated practice. Yeah. I think we have to now, you know, there's a massive opportunity around um, data 
and science being able to now move things that used to be opinions about human beings into facts about yeah, human oh, yeah, beings. Yeah, that's great. And we have to totally grab so, that and use it. And I think you've talked about two things which are about practice, really. So how do we use data about human beings? How do we differentiate? Both of which I agree with. But is it about different capability then or different... different? So what is it that's going to move... The, so it's partly what we do for the practice, but is it about the core capability and the development that we take people? So should we be looking for people that have got a, a bent towards data, that are you know are coming out with... Uh, data science degrees and bring them into HR? Should we be looking for people that have, I don't know, a, a more, you know, go deeper, so psychologists that have got a real understanding and really want to be... So I'm just trying to work out where we get the talent from because, you know, we can try and change the practice, but if we haven't got the people, the capacity and the capability, it's a waste of time. Yeah, well, look, I think the profession needs problem solvers. I mean, I think that is really what, you know, the organisations we work for are paying us for. But we are meant to be solving problems as they pertain to human beings in the workforce. Now, of course, then, problem solving has always relied, if you looked at engineering, it sort of historically for, you know, two, sort of two centuries, has relied upon facts and data to solve engineering problems. And unfortunately for HR, those facts and that data wasn't as easily available about these things, much more complex, called human beings, for two centuries, but it is now available, right? So we should be looking for people who can use facts and evidence. It's not all about just data, it's about evidence, and some of that will be qualitative and some of that will be quantitative, but it won't all be quantitative. Um, And we're meant to be using then that evidence to solve the problems around human beings that our organisation sort of face. And I think if we can get to that space, then we have a pretty, uh, pretty rosy future ahead of us. Because you mentioned, you know, are robots going to steal our jobs? Well, robots are going to steal a lot of jobs, and that's a good thing, right? Because they're going to robots steal jobs which are the lowest grade work. So if you look at the history of technology, now I can see you're shaking your head and you're not sure. Well, I'm, I, I right? think. Well, go on. Technology normally changes. Historically, it's changed jobs for the better. Higher paid, better paid jobs come as a consequence of it. Well, technology has lifted more people out of yeah, poverty totally um, over the centuries than any other single thing that human beings have engaged with. So, um, you know, if you if you think you know, this argument about will robots steal our jobs, I mean, that's been running for a long time, right? So some agricultural worker in the 19th century looked at a threshing machine and regarded that as a robot that was going to steal their job. What it actually did, it lifted them out of a life of sort yeah. of pretty much sort of drudgery and sort of feudalism. Yeah. Um, go to, you know, um, you know manufacturing. Um, well, robots now so, do things which used to be just yeah. sort of dangerous, laborious, working yeah. factories more and more. But I think the issue is, there's two things that are different. One is the speed of the change this time. You know, the two industrial relations, one took 100 years, one took 60 years. Secondly, historically, the jobs created were always better than the jobs, and that the people that lost their jobs could get jobs that were better paid, better environment. I'm not sure that's the case. So if you think about... Because I think there will be an explosion in jobs, new jobs, data jobs, insight jobs, all of that stuff. But if I'm a taxi driver, an Uber driver, you know, I'm going to be in the labour market for 70 years. I'm not convinced I'm going to get those jobs. So I think it's the displacement activity as we go through the change that's the issue. Well, look, I mean, I, I'm, I, That's right. I don't, I don't really agree with that. So, look, I, I've worked in companies um, for all of my, well, for the last 20 years where, you know, technology has been massively disrupting sort of jobs within them because they've been on the cutting edge of new technologies. 
And I remember, you know, you talk about speed. I mean, I remember when I was at Get the Images, we had people called picture researchers. Yeah, so before yeah. pictures were digitalised and, you know, sold through websites, um, they, they were on shelves in massive warehouses and a picture researcher would get a call from an advertising agency who'd said, you know, I'm doing this advertising campaign, I need some pictures of pyramids at dawn because we're advertising yeah, yeah, yeah. some kind of product where Arabian Nights is a thing. Um, so they would go to a warehouse, go and find some pictures that met the brief, pick them, pack them, send them to agency, it'd all come back again and da 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 And then we digitalised um, imagery, right? So that was no longer required because the agency could do it on their own. But what it allowed though, and that happened in the space of about a year, right? So that was really fast change. But those picture researchers, they didn't all lose their jobs. What they were actually able to do was go on to work that was more cognitively demanding. So now the agency, so we could sell to the agency, oh, you don't need to um, give us such a tight brief anymore. Give us a concept. We've got people here who will now go and think about imagery of all sorts of yeah, different yeah. types that we've got that might meet that. Con- and then they would just email it to them or however they then. Yeah, yeah. Now that was enriching. And I could go on, people in contact centres in Sky. Yeah, technology has taken the really sort of drudgy bit away from it and it has allowed them to actually interact more. Um, and you, you were laughing about the contact centres at Sky. But, but I know now, you used to get annoyed with how long it took to get through. And now I know that if you ring, you get through really, really yeah, quickly. Yeah, yeah. But that's because all of the things that were engaging contact centre people's time in the past, a lot of that has now been automated because you don't even have to ask the questions yeah, yeah, I mean, And it means they're more available to serve you as a customer. And I could keep going on about no, that. I, I mean, I don't, think that, so there's, there's, I don't think anyone's arguing that we want to stop this or we need to get off it. I think we've got to utilise the technology. Exactly, we've got to utilise the technology that's there. I think there is going to be disruption. I think the issue is... It's about, again, how businesses deal with it. You know, so I know a big bank, one of my neighbours, they're going from 50,000 to 500 people in a year. None of them people are going to be redeployed and they're in parts of the world that ain't going to, they're not going to find employment. So there are times when it will be disruptive and difficult. Now, I think we've got to deal with both of those, both situations where we can retrain, redevelop people, give them more interesting work. Absolutely, we've got to do it. But I I just think this time there's going to be issues where there are people left behind. I think we're going to have greater inequality. I think we'll have real social problems because I think technology is going to create a a chasm in the labour market. I think there's a debate about that, right? Because I I think technology has done more to equalise people than anything. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing that used to make us unequal was information. You know, certain you know those that ruled us had all the information. Yeah, I agree with that. Now we can get whatever information we need to uh, make decisions and choices at the push of a button. So I don't know. I mean, your your example pretty extreme. I've never heard of anyone going from fifty thousand to five hundred, and we won't debate that particular example. But that is retail uh, bank uh, call center activity uh, that they can automate it, voice recognition. I'll be surprised if they can change their customers' behaviour that quickly because human beings. One of the things we do know about them factually now is their behaviour changes quite slowly. I think I think Um, it was such a poor experience that actually the technology made. Anyhow, let's not go into that. So I think we you know we may agree to disagree, but I think one of the things that's clear is there's a huge challenge for HR to think about this change, this disruption, and think about how our organisations are going to cope with it, to create cultures where we're developing people, educating people, helping people adapt, grow, learn, get more interesting work. So I think we sort of agree on that premise. What I want to do is just to finish, Ralph, um, is to talk a little bit about you outside of your job. So tell us a little bit about, you know, I know you've got three children. Uh, they're sort of grown up now, but they're, I'm sure, still pretty demanding. Family's always been important. But tell us a little bit about what else stimulates you outside of work. 
Yeah, I've got three kids. They're all adults now. Uh, they're not actually that demanding. Um, good for them. Um, but uh, yeah, so my, my big thing is experiences. Right, so I, I don't really, uh, I'm not interested in things. Uh, you won't, anyone listening to this won't be able to see me, but they could probably tell what I'm wearing. I'm, you know, I haven't got labels dripping off me. Um, I don't care about anything. I don't drive like a, a car with a label on it. Um, I drive a bog standard sort of vehicle, and I cycle most places. I don't even cycle a very expensive bike. Um, but for me, it's all about experience. Right, so it's about what you feel and what you see and what you smell or whatever it might be. So I love okay. travel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and I love cycling, for example. So I, I'm very into renewable energy. So I have free electric bikes, which is kind of weird. Um, but I like travelling because I actually do like experiencing what happens in the world on my journey to work, rather than just being on a train and gazing at my screen. Yeah. yeah. Um, so new things, but I travel a lot. Um, and, and is that and so to give us an idea, so sort of a. I'm sure you travel for work, but tell us about, you know, trips that you've done, holidays, the experiences that you've been through. Just give us a couple. I've been everywhere, Kevin. I mean, I'm about to go to Madagascar. Okay. Uh, that should be sort of interesting enough. Um, I like diving because I, I, like, um, oh, okay. I like I like wildlife and I think diving's great because you can get up a bit closer to the, yeah, yeah. To the creatures um, without them kind of eating you. Um, so that's good. Um, yeah, I mean... So what's next? What's the next big adventure? What's the next big trip? Um, Madagascar well, to me, you know I know it's a cliche Kevin but life's an adventure <laughs> like, but, but I, I sort of mean it right I mean it's, so I, I don't I don't, I don't harp back to the past I um, so the music I, I'm very into music but the music I listen to I don't go back to my old record collection I'm bored of that um, I'm still trying to find new bands new music that I like you know that's one of the good things about having kids right is that they actually introduce yeah, yeah, they you do. to what's, what's new and what's happening so I'm just not a big fan of um, of going past. Okay. Theatre, reading. Yeah, I love theatre. Yeah, okay. because the theatre is an experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't like musicals. Um, no, but, uh, yeah, it's all about Eve. You know, not so long ago, amazing yeah, some production. Yeah. Saw another thing um, about Amy or something like that, which is really cool. Um, okay. At one of the other theatres the other day, uh, reading. Yeah, I, I don't actually. I don't read business books at all. Novels? They, they, to me, are a lot like an experience. You, you know, the, if all the experience in a business book can be found in the first five pages, <laughs> and then be, best to go back to a novel. Um, yeah, I'm a great believer in, in fiction, because you know, think about, you know, value for money. You know, a book, uh, some people go they're expensive, but, you know, 10 quid yeah. for, like, you yeah. know, 10, 20 yeah. hours of being completely immersed in, a, in another world or another experience or another person's life. I mean, that's priceless. You know, that's the ridiculous value for money. So, that's, yeah, that's what I did. Okay. Uh, thank you for spending uh, your time with us. I think it's been a, a great podcast. I'm sure people will get um, lots of insight from it, lots of things that they may want to uh, contact you about, because I think you've most probably started a few debates there along the way. Certainly the stuff about measurement I thought was fantastic, the bit about culture, career choices, um, and even a bit about you know the future of work, which I think neither, none of us know, but we're going to be dealing with in the next few years. Um, so thank you for your time, Ryf. Um I think it's been great, and um, look out for the next one. So this is the end of the uh, podcast, HR Futures. Uh, listen out for the next one.